ask the rest of you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. If you're just joining us, we've, uh, we've begun a series in Romans, uh, a series that uh, promises to show us the revelation of the gospel. It's been argued that Romans is probably the most thorough explanation of, of the gospel in the New Testament. Um, part of the, the journey to get there and to see that full revelation is to also recognize that in Romans, uh, not only is the gospel revealed, not only is the righteousness of God revealed, but as we saw last week, you know, you start getting into some stuff that um, if we were all cats, would just rub our fur wrong, you know, um, stuff like the wrath of God being revealed. What is the wrath of God? And is it random? Is it arbitrary? Or is it, is it maybe a, a good thing? Maybe God's anger is, is righteous, and maybe it's proper that, that he would be opposed to what is evil and what is unrighteous. And, and so we were wrestling with that last week. This week, we come to a text, as, as John mentioned at the beginning of the service, uh, very controversial. Uh, there's a lot of material about um, sexuality, and in particular homosexuality, uh, but also a whole list of other sins and vices and things that, that aren't flattering in the least and address each one of our hearts. Uh, and so I think that's important to keep in mind as we open this text and as you, you know, see the emphasis, obviously, on the nature of sexual sins and sexuality, uh, there is something in here for all of us. Let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to begin in verse 21 and read through verse 32. For although they knew God, they can be we just as easily. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let me pray. 
Father, this is a a sobering text indeed, and um, each one of us stands before you, uh, I think, reminded in one way or another of the brokenness that's within us, indeed just even outright rebellion. And so we stand before you thankful that we have been redeemed. That in Jesus Christ, we've been redeemed. That he paid for us to win us back and to make us new. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I think I want to encourage you. We, we include an outline every week just if, uh, if it helps with a roadmap for the sermon and what the material is. Uh, this week, I think in particular, it's going to be helpful because there's a a complexity to what Paul's doing and a repetition that I'm eager for you to see because I think it helps us understand why he's saying what he's saying and the implications for it. And we're talking fundamentally about two things that you hear repeated three times. First of all, that we've done these sinful exchanges. We have traded in something incredibly valuable, the most precious thing that exists in all creation, uh, and traded that in for something that, that is not only, not, not only worthless, but, but actually dishonorable. Um, and so three times Paul reminds us about that. And then three times we hear about God's response to our exchanging what is valuable for what is um, shameful. We, see, we hear that three times God gives them up. Um, so let me begin by talking about these exchanges that are taking place. And in your outline you see that Fundamentally, we're guilty of exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images, and that affects our vertical relationship with God, what we call eternal life. And we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and that affects our internal life, as you might call it, as we wrestle with hearts that long for things that they ought not to long for. And then thirdly, we have exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones um, and how uh, Paul breaks that down into women exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones and likewise the men uh, exchanging natural relations and were consumed with passion for one another. Um, Let's begin just by talking about this this exchange and why it's it's a problem. Idolatry is the source of immorality, as one of the commentators I've been reading puts it, and and I think that's a really helpful thing to latch on to, that what what we worship affects how we behave. And if we are worshiping the living God, he's going to give us the ways that bless him and that's going to bless us for how we should act, things that we've been refraining... uh, reflecting on even in our call to worship, the first four commandments, and we'll look at the rest of the table in in our response in just a moment. But what we worship affects how we act, and if we're worshiping the wrong thing, and if we're giving our heart and giving our affection and looking for satisfaction in created things rather than the creator, then automatically that's going to lead to us doing things and acting in ways that aren't going to be glorifying to God and aren't going to be according to how he made us and designed us to function. So when we look at this breakdown in our relationship with God, as we said, this is a corruption of our eternal life, our relationship with God. It's no longer functioning how it should. And that's why in verse 18, as we looked last week, if you've got Romans 1 open, 
That's why it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They're trying to force down the lid on what is, you know, uncontainable, basically. You can't deny the reality that there's a God and there's a creator and he's powerful, even though we say, you know, maybe as a culture, well, you can't prove that. We all know by virtue of our design and the image of God that we bear that it that there is a God, and God's wrath is being revealed against those who are trying to suppress that. Verse 25 is sort of a, an expansion on that thought. Instead of suppressing the truth, what we're doing is we're exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Literally, it's the lie. It's the lie. It's the lie about what's ultimate and what's real. And if we don't get who God is right, and if we're believing the lie about the nature of God, then that's going to affect everything else. And this is why this is so fun, foundational, that um, they exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshiped and served created things, the creature, rather than the creator who is blessed forever, who literally ought to be praised forever. Amen. So uh, the, the dynamic here is that instead of suppressing God's worth, um, instead of suppressing God's glory and his goodness, we should be expressing his worth and expressing his glory and his goodness. And, and this is why humanity is broken. We're not doing that the way that we were designed to do. So that's the one dynamic going on here. Now what the gospel does is it rescues us from that and it restores that eternal life, that vertical relationship we have with God, and it restores what was corrupted by our idolatry. And Another way of looking at basically this same thought, but in a positive light, is Paul's remarks to the Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians 1, you can hear some of the similar language. Paul says that people report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Um, and so Paul's basically just flipping the dynamic upside down. So in order to be rescued from this condition, this human condition where we've exchanged the, the glory of God for idols, we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, you know, these Thessalonian believers... Uh, they have turned and exchanged their worship of idols and turned to the living God. And they're serving him, they're praising him because he deserves to be praised and he deserves to be served because of the work of Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come, all right? From God's righteous wrath, his right, right wrath, his right anger against everything that is contrary to how he designed it, all right? So things like wickedness, things like evil, things like rebellion, things like you know, hurting one another, etc. So you've got on one hand those who are uh, turning their backs on God and exchanging, you know, the truth of God for a lie. And then on the other hand, you've got folks like the Thessalonians, and you know, they've turned from the idols to God. And then we have to ask, well, is there another category of people? Is there a third category any, anywhere else on this planet? Um, you know, cultures and societies might say that there are, you know, numerous uh, innumerable categories of people, but fundamentally when you turn to this book, there are only two categories of people. Either those who are serving the living and true God or those who are serving a false God. 
an idol. And Jesus would describe it this way. You're either a sheep or a goat. You're either lost or you're found. You're either, you know, when they drag in the net, you're either a good fish or a bad fish. You're either a tree that produces good fruit or you're a tree that produces bad fruit. So in Jesus's mind and in the Bible's mind, humanity is binary. And it all depends on where the heart allegiance is. What are you worshiping and where are you getting life from? So there's this threefold expression of this exchange that's going on in us, contrary to how God made us. And what Paul's going to continue to unfold for us um, as we get to the good news, we have to reckon with reality, why we need a rescue. And it continues by God's response to our exchange. It says that God gave them up. And again, it's three times in verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions or homosexuality. In verse 28, it says that since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Um, so let me begin in verse 24. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity uh, and to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst, uh, among themselves. Uh, a couple of words that are important here. Um, first of all, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Um, when Paul talks about lust, he's using a particular word, and what it's expressing is this over-desire. God gave them up to this over-desire of their hearts. And what he goes on to express is impurity. And the impurity that he's talking about, we get our word uh, cathartic from, where if, you're, uh, if something is cathartic, it means it's purifying and it's cleansing and it kind of gets out of you what was, what was making you miserable. Um, and so there's a cleansing piece to what's cathartic. What's impure, as Paul puts it, is not cathartic, it's polluting. And it's used specifically with reference to sexual sins. So the problem is God's giving us over to our over-desires for the wrong practice of our sexuality. And when you get to things like sin, what you need to understand about sin is that it's taking something that God created good, God made everything very good, and all sin is is it's taking something that God created good and then corrupting it. It's using what God made good and then taking it and using it for a purpose that God did not intend, either for harm or for neglect. And so when God created sex, he gave it to us, and he says this is a beautiful expression of unity and complementariness, and it's designed for your good, and it's designed for my glory, and then we take that beautiful gift, and because of our over-desire, not because the problem isn't desire. Desire is a good thing. But over-desire means that that becomes what it was never intended to be, uh, in our idolatrous minds and hearts, even, our, even sexuality and sexual expression becomes an idol. It becomes something we're trying to get life from. It becomes something that we're trying to identify ourselves by, by virtue of. And it's rampant in our culture. And the message is, is that if you're not sexually fulfilled, you're not alive. You're not really living. You're not enjoying life. And this is why when um, we were looking earlier, idolatry corrupts this vertical relationship we have with God, our eternal life, as you call it. But when our hearts get corrupted and when we start giving in to our over-desires and, this, and the impurity that's there, 
that corrupts our internal life. Eternal life, internal life, all of it's affected. And so what Paul goes on to share is that this, uh, this creates this breakdown where our idolatry that was dishonoring uh, to God, the living God, our sexual sins, God gives us over to them, and they become this way where our bodies which, and our persons, which are made in the image of God, become dishonored. So there's, there's this parallel thing going on. We're dishonoring God through worshiping images, and in a sense, God says, all right, I'm going to give you over. You're the image of God, and you're going to become dishonored yourselves as you give in to sexual temptations and sins and so on. So I think it's important that right from the start, you get Paul talking about sexual sins in general, and then he focuses and he tightens the, the, the lens, and he says God gave them up to, um, uh, to homosexuality, literally in verse 26, uh, to dishonorable passions. And their women exchanging natural relations, and the men are doing likewise. Um, if, you know, you've been in the church for a long time, it's no secret to you that the Bible forbids homosexual practice. So Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman is an abomination. If you're new to the church, um, I'm probably not going out on a limb here to say you're, you're aware that the church traditionally has had a, you know, a stand on homosexuality that forbids it. Uh, but you might be coming with questions like, why is that? Or is that right even? Should the church be doing this? That seems antiquated. That seems restrictive and repressive. And isn't there another way to look at this? Well, um, some, some background here, as Paul's writing to the church in Rome, uh, the Roman Christians who receive this letter, they're going to hear Paul talking about um, uh, what's unclean and unpurifying, these, these uh, lustful thoughts, and he's going to see Paul talking about exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones, and they're going to go, yeah, we totally see that. We totally get that. Because they lived in a Roman culture where all throughout the culture, right on up to the top, to the emperor, there was really, really messed up thinking about sexuality. So Nero presumably is the emperor at this time. Uh, we think Paul was writing from Corinth. We think he was writing around 57 AD. And, um, and Nero became emperor in 54 AD. Nero was, well, I mean, he was not only a narcissist, but he was just a bad person. And he had some really wicked, messed up thinking. Um, so this was after the fact, we think, but you know that Nero didn't just change on a dime. He didn't just wake up one day and decide, all right, I'm going to become a pervert. But he had this, this relationship with one of his servants, and he literally had a marriage ceremony where he dressed up as the bride, and his, um, his servant was the, the groom, and they you know, had a ceremony, had a wedding ceremony. with, with he, He's in drag, and his, quote, husband is his servant. That servant died. And then um, about a, a few years later, Nero has a relationship with one of his servants named Sporus. Uh, Sporus is 14 years old, and he has Sporus castrated, and he has a public wedding ceremony with Sporus where Nero is the husband, and Sporus is now the bride. Um, and so this is the culture and the leadership uh, governing Rome, and this is what the Christians in Rome are experiencing. And Paul is saying, this isn't natural. And all the Roman Christians are going, yeah, you're right, it's not, it's not natural. 
Um, and I understand that our contemporary discussion and dialogue about homosexuality, that word natural is a key buzzword. Um, the argument uh, from those who are sort of reevaluating Romans 1 goes like this. Hey, what Paul's condemning is for a person who identifies as heterosexual, someone who's heterosexual, um, switching gears and becoming, you know, and getting involved homosexually. And that's, that would be unnatural. But if you're kind of born that way, then there's no problem. Mm. I also say what Paul is, is arguing against is, um, well, is basically circumstances of, of homosexual rape and violence toward a person or pedophilia, you know, taking a 14-year-old and having sexual relations with, with a child. Um, so on those last two counts, the, the, the church around the world can say absolutely amen. That is wrong. It's not just wrong. It's not just violent. It's predatorial, you know, rape and pedophilia. But on the first count where, you know, well, what's really the problem here is, is exchanging what, you, what your sexual identity is and going contrary to that, that can't be proved. What you basically are up against, if, if you're going to say that Paul isn't condemning homosexuality, then you, what you really need to be saying, and the burden of proof in this case, is that Paul's not just okay with something that's monogamous, and is committed and is basically the ancient equivalent of gay marriage because we, he's already said sexual immorality and, and sexual sins are wrong and that would include things like fornication and sex outside of marriage and whatever. And so if, you're not, if there's not a marriage relationship, then sexual experiences outside of that are wrong. So now we're just talking about a monogamous, committed, you know, lifelong marriage. And so would Paul be in favor of that between two people of the same sex? Really the question, when we really get down to it, is would Jesus be okay with that? Not, and not just okay with that, right? Like championing it because Jesus is a champion of marriage because marriage is holy and marriage is spiritual and marriage is a parable. And it shows the world, ideally, when it's healthy and beautiful and good, it shows the world the relationship, a parable, the relationship Christ has with his bride, the church. And so you have to ask yourself, is not only Jesus just okay with it, but is he enthusiastically for it? Would he bless it? Jesus' first miracle was at the wedding at Canaan. And at that wedding, you know, there's a problem. They run out of wine, and in that age and that day, the, the, the wedding ceremony would last for days, sometimes a whole week. And, and it was just a time for the town, the whole community, to come together and enjoy a break from just the, the grind and to run out of wine, to run out of, to, for the party to, to come to a grinding halt and fall short meant that the parable was going to fall short, that the picture of new wine dripping from the mountains and the new covenant blessings and God coming to be with his people and for this unity and for this joy and this celebration to take place isn't going, it, it's not a good picture of that. So Jesus makes gallons and gallons of beautiful, wonderful, you know, luxurious wine. What if, what if the wedding at Canaan wasn't for this man and this woman from the town of Canaan? What if it was two of Jesus' disciples? Would Jesus enthusiastically bless that union and say, you know what, we're going to keep this party going? 
and for my first public miracle, the picture of the kingdom coming and God's will on earth being done as it is in heaven, I'm going to make lots and lots of wine because of this homosexual union. And that's really what you have to prove. And that's really what you have to endorse. And I, so let me, let me just stop there and say I understand that there are, those of, there are people in this room who wrestle with same-sex attraction. And there are people in this room, and you're, you've, you've kind of had this question in the back of your mind, wondering, am I even, a, am I even just gay? And this is a burden. And I understand. And this is a, a this is a weight that you ought not to carry alone, and the church should come alongside you to help you to live in purity and holiness and as a disciple of Jesus and not ostracize those who are wrestling with same-sex attraction and not give um, and certainly not judge them. But also the rest of us need to keep in mind that Paul's not just talking about homosexuality. The, the previous section there was about all kinds of sexual immorality, and that, that includes all of us. Because every single one of us in here has a broken sexual identity, a broken experience of our sexuality. It's affected by sin, and every single one of us wrestles in some way or another to live the kind of sexual lives that God intended for us, either in chastity or in fidelity. How do you do it right? How do you do it in a way that glorifies God? And you know, all you can do is be faithful, but none of us are getting it perfect. So all of us have a burden to bear. All of us are carrying a load. Let's do it together. If you want more information, and obviously we don't have time this morning to go through um, a lot of the, the dialogue, and we need to do it respectfully and lovingly about homosexuality. This past summer, uh, we did an adult discipleship class on Jesus and homosexuality. And the recordings for those three classes are online, along with the handouts that I made, and you can go there, and we talked about what did Jesus teach about homosexuality and marriage? How did Jesus treat homosexuals and the sexually broken? And what hope does the gospel offer to homosexuals and to those struggling with same-sex attraction and to all of us in our sexual brokenness? So if you want more information, you can go online. And, uh, and then the other thing I'll mention is that coming up uh, April 16th at Covenant Presbyterian in, in Harrisonburg, Rosaria Butterfield, who wrote The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, uh, she's going to be giving a lecture talking about her conversion out of uh, an identity and a, a lifestyle of um, a lesbian relationship. She was a tenured professor. She gave all that up because Jesus laid claim to her life and called her out of that. And, um, and she's respectful. She's honest. She talks about how hard that was, how painful that was, and how wonderfully, in her case, the church came alongside her and blessed her. So there's... Um, I would definitely commend that lecture to you. All right, we need to move on. Uh, so I want to talk about how God not only, uh, the third thing that he gave them up to do was not, ought not to be done, verse 28. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. And so God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. There's some wordplay going on here. They did not see fit, and God's, God gave them up to literally a, a mind that's not fitting, to do what's not fitting, um, etc. And Paul is using a word here that, incidentally, the Greek, Greco-Roman culture would have identified and latched on to because the Stoic philosophers talked about what's not fitting, meaning what's not natural. One of the philosophers, um, or I'm sorry, one of the commentators that I was reading was talking about the philosophers, saying that within Stoic thought, the positive phrase, 
denotes what is fitting, what is one's duty, and what is in harmony with nature. And, uh, and what ends up happening is Paul talks about what is in disharmony with that. And he goes and does this list of 21 different vices, if, if you will. And, um, and he starts with a category of four, and then five, and then 12. And uh, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice, or some of your translations read depravity. Then he moves on to the next five, and he talks about they are full of envy and murder. By the way, envy and murder, there's one letter difference. They rhyme. Um, and then strife, deceit, maliciousness. And then another 12, so nine already, now 12 more. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, uh, haughty, meaning literally supermen. They consider themselves above everybody else. Boastful. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless. Those two words rhyme with the exception of one letter. And all of these last four begin with the letter A. They are uh, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This thing just goes on and on and on. And I would love to hear Kendrick Lamar do this as a freestyle rap. Because Paul really is being intentional about the um, the assonance going on here, the rhyming, and he's just going to town, showing this is how corrupt our culture has become. And so, you know, Kendrick Lamar at the Grammys just is given his history of the experience of the black race, and just this is how bad it's been, this is how hard it's been, and you just, you know, you're kind of overwhelmed. Paul is showing this is how bad it's been. This is how fallen the human race has become. And Notice there's 21 vices here. Homosexuality and other forms of sexual sins have been mentioned. And I don't know where you consider yourself in light of those, three, those two categories, but look at these categories. And this is enough to silence every single mouth in this room. We're all guilty. We've all done something to break the Ten Commandments, to look at these these vices and say, you know, this is even what's natural to people. This is the, the description of the general disorder of human society. And so what we see here is that not only has our eternal life been corrupted, our internal life been corrupted, but externally, culturally, there's just, there's just this awful, rotten mess. And lastly, though they, knew, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And we might also add, and they persecute those who don't. So this is a probably a good place to pause and just ask, is there anything in this list that your life either tacitly um, and overtly or implicitly approves of any of these things? And if so, you know, we've got some soul searching to do, some repenting to do. And ask God to fill you with what's holy and good and loving and kind and peaceful and full of the Spirit rather than, than this mess. So you get to the end of this and you're just kind of like, oh my goodness. All right, so we've exchanged, exchanged, exchanged. God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. Has God given up? Has God given up on us? And the answer is no. That would be a wrong conclusion to make. God gave them up in the same way that, you know, if you're a parent here, um, you know that when one sure way to spoil your child 
And one sure way to have your child come back to you as a boomerang child or one that's, you know, failure to, to launch uh, is to just coddle them and shelter them and protect them and let them never, ever, ever have to deal with the consequences of their bad decisions. So if, if you want your grown 35-year-old child living in your basement playing video games the rest of their lives, that's how you do that. You know, never, ever let them live with their consequences. On the other hand, if you want someone to grow and mature and, and, and become wise and learn right from wrong, there are cases where, appropriately, you let your children deal with the consequences of their actions. You give them over to their wrong decision-making. Because they're not going to listen to you, even though you've told them, that's not a good idea. No, I'm still going to do it. Okay, let's see how this turns out. Jesus told the story of a father, a rich father, very rich father. He had two sons. And the youngest son said, Father, I really... It'd really be great if you were dead because then I could have my inheritance and go live an independent life the way I want to live it, not according to your rules, but according to mine. And the father said, if that's your frame of mind, then I'm going to let you live with the consequences and see where that line of thinking takes you. Where that line of thinking took the younger brother was to a place of hunger and being covered in pig poop. He squandered his father's inheritance with basically a lot of sexual immorality. Uh, and then he came back just begging to be you know, the scholar he made. He knew he didn't have any claim on being a part of the household anymore. But what did his father do? Did he shame him and scold him and say, you know what, you're, you're dead to me. Instead, he ran after him. He saw him. He, he never stopped looking out from his porch, you know, hoping to get a glimpse of his prodigal son returning after coming to realize what was up with that way of thinking, of that way of feeling, that way of desiring. That was death to me. And life was had in my father's house. And the father embraces him and covers him with kisses despite being covered in pig poop, covers him with kisses, puts a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, a robe on his back, and says, you know what, we're going to have a party now. God did not give up on us. And that's why he not only gave us up to understand where our wrong, broken thinking, sinful acting is going to take us, but he gave him up, that is Jesus. Romans 8, Paul's taking, I'm, I'm jumping ahead, but Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God didn't give up on us. He gave us his son. Ephesians 5, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A couple of verses later, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, having catharted her, purified her, removed her shame and her guilt, so that he might present, to the, church, present the church to himself in splendor, without spot 
or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And there Paul's going again, just over and over and over again. The, the contrary to the bad list, this is the good list. The work that Jesus has done for us. You and I exchange God's glory for something shameful. Whatever it is for you, it's very personal and you know, each one of us has it. We exchanged God's glory for something shameful, and Jesus exchanged the glory of God for the shame of the cross so that all who believe in him and who look to Jesus to deliver them, to, to turn from our idolatry and trying to find satisfaction in created things and turn to the creator who is also our redeemer and who loved us and gave himself for us through him, we get Purified, forgiven, shame is removed, new creation, no more spot, stain, wrinkle, holy, beautiful, and without blemish. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we thank you for telling us the truth about our condition, for being honest about our our need for you and uh, telling us that, that uh, left to our own devices and left to our own direction, uh, it's going to take us to a bad place. And thank you for being a loving father who tells us the truth. And we also thank you that you receive your children when we return, even though in our arrogance and independence uh, we'll ignore your, your words and exchange your truth for a lie. You, you receive us back. Through repentance and faith in Jesus, we can call you Father. We are adopted into your family and we are made sons and daughters. Thank you for removing our shame. Thank you for, for continuing this progressive work of making us new. And we look forward to the day when all of the temptations and all of the brokenness that we experience still will be absorbed and taken away and all that will remain is us in glory with you forever. In the meantime, would you find us faithful? Would you find us dependent? Would you find us repentant? We pray in Jesus' name.